Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 16th of January. You will be hearing this on the 17th. Um, we have a very, I don't know, I, I th- I'm very excited about this episode and I'm going to explain a little bit about it. But first, uh, for the second week now, I want to introduce our co-host, uh, Tyler Austin Harper. Tyler, how are you doing? Good, man. Uh, it's snowing in Maine, another uh, day in the great white north. Um, you, how was your, uh, how's your long weekend? Pretty good. I am the co-chair of MLK at Bates, um, which means yesterday was mostly spent um, sort of doing our MLK programming. It's a big event every year. We do workshops and stuff. We had um, Bryant Terry on, who's a a chef and sort of a vegan chef and food activist um, who's immensely cool. Um, So I got to hang out with him a lot yesterday, which was which is pretty great. How how did the students respond to it? Like, you know, I I know that these schools are so different than when I went there because when I went to, like, the, for the listeners who don't know, um, Tyler teaches at Bates, which is a very small elite school in Maine. I went to Bowdoin, which is one of the other two elite small colleges in Maine. In my mind, they're all the same. So I just like to, you yeah, know, definitely. I don't know. I don't think there's that much difference between the yeah. three of them. Um, when I went there, it was still very much a New England prep school thing. Most of the students were white. I think we had like two black students in our entire class. Uh, we had wow. like 10 to 12 Asian kids and almost everyone was white, right? And then afterwards, we had a new president come in who really aggressively made the school much, much more diverse. And now when I go back to Bowdoin, it's like seeing a different school. It's crazy to me. Now, all those POC kids are rich for the most yeah. part, right? But it's still better than what it was, you know, it was like, cause at that point it was like this weird, I'm not going to lie and be like, Oh, I was like a ah, fish out of water is so isolating, but you know, it was, I was just like, wow, there's a ton of white people. But yeah, now within the new sort of diverse type of elite schools, like how, how does that MLK program go over with the kids? Uh, I mean, I think Bates students in general are pretty um, activism oriented and sort of socially conscious. Um, And so it goes over super well. I think this year in particular was a big hit. I mean, everyone is obsessed and interested in food, you know, and so anytime you have someone to come in and talk about food and um, sort of food justice, and he he did a cooking demo and the sort of whole bit. So uh, yeah, it it went over super well. Um, It's one of the things I like about the day is it's one of the few um, times in the year where faculty, staff and students are all doing stuff together. You know, we're usually outside of classes in our silos. And that's particularly true with um, staff. But one of the cool things about MLK Day is we definitely have, um, you know, staff put on workshops, staff staff help organize the event and and do the sort of intellectual piece of of thinking through, you know, what our year's theme is going to be, who who we're inviting, etc. So, you know, um, as a faculty member who sometimes thinks the uh, sort of professors are are too much the face of of you know college life uh, one of the things i like about it is it's you know uh, a moment where we have um you know staff in, in the mix as well um but yeah no, no it was it was uh, a great day and the, the theme was you know i'm i'm interested in food and he was extremely cool so we have two parts of this show today and the first part i you know i've talked to some people who listen to the show and one of the things that they said that they liked about the two episodes that we've done so far is the literary talk. Today, we did an f- exercise where I asked you last week, hey, what book should I read that we can talk about? And you said that we should read Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, right? Um, and we're not going to give this book away. Honestly, I don't think there's much to spoil about this book. Uh, it's not like a type of book that that is uh, 
relies on some sort of great reveal or something like that. But what what sort of inspired you to tell me to read this book? I think it's interesting um, insofar as it's one of these sci-fi novels that has had a kind of renaissance uh, in recent years, um, particularly after 2016, because I think people have found it to be pretty prophetic. It sort of imagines a future in the 2020s of, of rampant climate change and um, sort of political dystopia and whacked out libertarian market fundamentalism. Um, and I think there's also a president um, whose slogan uh, is make America great again. And so there is yeah. this really sort of weird eeriness to the novel. Um, and, you know, given that it's an election year and everything that's going on with with the climate at the moment, we have that uh, crazy guy and, um, you know, the new libertarian president, uh, Malay or whatever his name is. Uh, you know, there's a lot of resonances with our present moment. Um, so, yeah, I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at. So to introduce the readership, Octavia Butler is a black science fiction uh, writer. She was born in 1947, and she grew up in Pasadena, right, which at the time was quite segregated because you know all of America is segregated in 1947. But Southern California is a strange form of segregation. She grows up. She seems to be like all writers, but maybe a little bit more intense. You know, had real sort of social adjustment issues. Mostly spent her time, her mother was a cleaner and she would go with her mother to go clean houses. And then she ends up basically reading all the time. And then like the path of many writers and decides that, hey, I think I can write better books than the books that exist. Right. And she becomes a science fiction writer, quite an anomaly, like not that black women are not interested in science fiction. It is odd. It is unusual to have a black woman science fiction author. Right. Like, it's just I she is by far the most famous one, I would yeah, say, yeah. right? Like, I, yeah, like, I don't, yeah. right. Um, and in that way, you know, like, I think that some of the way that she is discussed is through that lens, right? But it's one that she herself rejected, right? She said, mm -hmm. I don't want to be thought of a black woman science fiction author. I just want to be thought of as an author, basically, right? Which is something that many people think. This book, Parable of the Sower, is the first of a series, it was written in 1992, so she was quite far along in her career at that time. Um, it is, you know, that time I think is going to be quite interesting. But do you want to describe a little bit about what this book actually is about? Like, just tell us like what the setup is and, and what the setup is such a weird, unliterary word, but right? Like, what is the premise of the book? Yeah, so um, it's sort of, in a way, a kind of buildings Roman that um, starts with a young woman named Lauren. Um, it's told uh, via her diary. She writes these kind of letters or diary entries. Um, it's set in the sort of 2020s um, in a moment of really dystopic um, climate change. She lives in a gated community. Uh, most communities, it seems like at this point, are sort of walled off and gated. Um, they're constantly being sort of raided and vandalized by people who are homeless or who, who who are, um, aren't fortunate enough to live in, in one of these more sort of middle-class enclaves. Um, and, you know, over the course of the novel, um, it's kind of a travel novel in a certain way. Um, you know, a series of events unfold that sends Lauren and some of her friends outside of their, their walled community and traveling north. Um, there's also a kind of, uh, you know, uh, we only get Lauren's perspective in this novel, um, but she she basically aspires to be a cult leader. Like that's not how we would put it. You know, that's <laughs> yeah, not how yeah, we would yeah. put it. 
you know, but she's like starting her own religion. And we get these sort of um, bits of religious writing scattered throughout it that are are sort of interesting and strange. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I always think is interesting about this novel, and I teach it uh, most semesters, is, you know, uh, I think students and, you know, any reader in general is programmed to sort of side with Lauren. Uh, but if you take a like a more detached view, she is really like trying to start a religious cult, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, yeah. wait, wait. wait. Let, let's talk about that in a second here because that part was really interesting to me. But um, the first thing I want to ask you about is that, uh, you know, the thing that struck me first about this book more than anything, I think your description of it is quite adequate and people can can figure it out. It is like, you know, like you can say it's like Huck Finn or something like that, or you can say whatever. But, you know, it's a young girl, very idealistic. Things go really bad. And then she travels north. I guess it's the opposite direction of the Huck Finn travel. But a lot of uh, science fiction books are like this too, right? It's it's kind of like The Road in some sort of way, which, you yeah. know, the Cormac McCarthy book where um, somebody embarks on a journey through a completely dystopian, bombed out world, the last of it. I don't know. It, it, it doesn't fall. It doesn't stray far from that sort mm-hmm. of motif or that idea, that narrative structure, which it shouldn't because that is, you know, an amazingly satisfying and good st- structure yeah, yeah. and there's no need to really <laughs> convert it. The first thing I'll say about this, I was actually shocked by how brutal this book is. They live in walled communities. They are raided all the time. People are like three-year-olds are murdered in this book, right? Like yeah, yeah. Children are dying and getting shot all the time. People are being tortured. Um, it is grim in this way that I actually found quite bracing. I was like, whoa, she is yeah, yeah. going for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And there moments where, yeah. yeah, there are moments where it's like, yo, please chill out a little bit, you know, like I, the other person that I cared about just died. And now yeah. this person died, you know, and then now like now this person in the family died. And now like the like now something's happening to the rest of the family. Like it was wild. I don't know. Like that, that, I, that was the first thing that I sort of was like, wow, this is. And I wondered what it, if that might have like how that was received, right? Like, or even how your students feel about it, because that was like, I was just like, wow, it's just, you know, this is a violent, violent book. So students definitely, uh, I think are troubled. Um, Not that they resist reading it or anything like that, but I definitely think they also find it really bracing. You know, it's something, teaching it is a good reminder. I, you know, given that I work on human extinction and sort of a lot of literary and filmic depictions of human extinction. Um, I think I'm often very sort of immersed in this kind of thing. And so um, uh, there's a way at a certain point, once you've read enough of these, it kind of washes over you. And so teaching it, it's actually a really good reminder that oh, yeah, this is actually a really, you know, <laughs> brutal novel when you, yeah. But, um, you know, I think students receive it well, but one of the things that can be challenging with, I also teach The Road, another extraordinarily brutal travel novel like this. And one of the things that's hard about teaching it is getting students to sort of peel back the violence and think about what it's doing or what what the point is and what she's trying to get across. Because I think um, they're often so confronted with the brutality that it's, um, you have to really push them to actually like think about it and analyze it, you know? Um, but yeah, no, I, I teach it most semesters and by the end, students usually cite it as one of the favorite things we, we do in class. The genius young girl who is th- dreaming of a new society within a dystopia is very familiar, right? Like that is a lot of science fiction books, it's a lot of science fiction movies. It's even stuff like The Land Before Time or something like oh, yeah. that, right? Like exactly. um, there is this idea of there's this vision and the vision is green, right? And the world is not. 
And so yeah. we must go towards the greenness or we must go towards a new society. Um, and yet I, this is actually the most violent portrayal of the current world that I've seen. And it's one I do think is interesting because I think that for a lot of people who started reading this now, this book became a bestseller again in 2020, right? Now, yeah. do you know why it did? I imagine, like in my head, it's probably, I was like, oh, well, maybe it caught some of the white fragility. Um, you know, uh, this is the book of black authors that you should read type of updraft that happened during the George Floyd protest. But I don't know why, why was it a big, why was it a big bestseller in 2020 again? I, I, I that's my read on the situation is that I think, um, I think the book is topical in, in myriad ways. Um, I mean, beyond the sort of politics and the, uh, make America great again stuff and the sort of dystopian right wing leader. Um, there's also the climate change piece, um, which in the last couple of years, I mean, particularly with the wildfire situation in California, I think there's, uh, there's wildfires in this, in this book. I think there's something topical about it, but I think um, the sort of George Floyd moment is definitely part of it when people felt like, okay, I need to sort of um, expand my, you know, or push my literary imagination towards some, um, Black authors who I, I probably haven't engaged with with previously. I also think this um, it became increasingly popular on, on college and, and high school curriculums too. I think for similar reasons, right? This push to sort right. of diversify after after twenty twenty. Um, so I think there are a lot of factors, but I think you're right that the post George Floyd moment, if I had to guess, would probably be the driving one. Right. The book is written as an epistolary novel, um, right? It's uh, and, and it's about which is you know just the book written in this this instance in what appears to be journal entries, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is, I always like reading books that are structured in this sort of way or as letters or whatever. Um, and uh, I want to talk about the climate part of it first and just read a section of it. There's a big early season storm blowing itself out in the Gulf of Mexico. It's bounced around the Gulf, killing people from Florida to Texas and down into Mexico. There are over 700 known dead so far, one hurricane. And how many people has it hurt? How many are going to starve later because of destroyed crops? That's nature. Is it God? Most of the dead are the street poor who have nowhere to go and who don't have the warnings, hear the warnings until it's too late for their feet to take them to safety. Where is safety for them anyway? Is it a sin against God to be poor? We're almost poor ourselves. There are fewer and fewer jobs among us, more of us being born, more kids growing up with nothing to look forward to. One way or another, we'll all be poor someday. The adults say things uh, say things will get better, but they never have. How will God, my father's God, beha behave towards us when we're poor? Right? Like so. That's that's. I thought I picked that paragraph out because I thought it was the most. You know, like it sort of shows the world is burning because of yeah, climate yeah. change. Um, some people have arranged themselves in walled cities, basically, or walled neighborhoods. There are people outside the walls. Those people are wildly violent, right? Everybody, there are dead corpses everywhere. There's no jobs. And um, there's nothing really to do except to kill each other, right? Like, so that's the vision that this world goes into. I also think it gets, um, you know, it is relentlessly grim, but it is also, um, you know, there's uh, 
you know, some people say that uh, we often imagine climate change as this sort of world ending dystopia rather than how we probably should imagine it, which is what we have now, just like much worse, you know, like right, our right. sort of present, but like dialed to 11. And I think that's really what um, Octavia Butler gives us because I mean, there's still a functioning society in a limited sense. There's still a president. There's still some kind of government, however tangential its grip on power is, you know, um, but everything is just falling apart. And I think that's one of the things that's both interesting about it, but that also makes it feel more realistic. It is not this sort of um, total lawless hellscape, um, but it is, it is quite close, you know? Um, But yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it is really singular, I think, among climate novels, even as it became the model, I think, for a lot of later what gets called climate fiction, you know. Um, I mean, one of the sort of interesting um, historical notes about this novel, it's not the first climate change novel. That distinction more or less belongs to J.G. Ballard, who wrote um, another great science fiction novelist, a British guy who wrote this book called The Drowned World in the, I think, 60s. Um, That novel doesn't imagine anthropogenic climate change. It imagines climate change from sort of natural stuff. Um, And so this is, this book in the early 90s is really the first climate novel um, that is imagining sort of anthropogenic climate change and its fallout, you know. Um, And so it definitely broke the mold in a certain way, um, but it also became the mold in, in another way. Yeah, yeah. Talk about that a bit, because, you know, like this book apparently is very influential, not just, you know, because of whatever uh, conversations about identity or whatever that might have happened in 2020, but that even at its time that it inspired it, you know, a lot of different types of iterations that came after it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the novel that uh, or the genre that uh, Parable belongs to is, is usually called climate fiction or cli-fi as a sort of pun on um, sci-fi and climate fiction. Um, and it really did become a kind of model. I mean, more recent climate novels, um, Shanghai Lee's On Such a Full Sea is similarly um, set in this sort of uh, gated communities featuring featuring characters who are sort of traveling between different gated communities and realizing that there are all these sort of class elements amidst this natural disaster. Um, there's Alison Stein's Road Out of Winter, which is is quite similar. There's a climate disaster, man-made. Um, this time it's it's a, a permanent winter um, that sets the the characters traveling and, and moving from sort of gated community to gated community. Um, the Road, Corm- the McCormick McCarthy novel, um, right. was published about a decade after, maybe a little more follows a really similar format. Um, And so I really do think it established this, um, what I think of is actually a pretty conservative vision within climate fiction, which is that, you know, it's premised on the idea that, um, you know, human nature is, you know, we're prone toward violence and depravity, that we're inherently racist and hierarchical. Um, You know, in Parable, there's, you know, you see moments of of 21st century slavery um, in a return to sort of a hatred of interracial marriage. Um, There's also, you know, the idea that the future will be tribalistic and that if you don't have a strong state and government in place and a strong law, that, you know, order will totally collapse. And that's a really conservative idea, even as this novel is a um, definitely on the sort of side of progress and environmental justice and so on. And that's one of the things that I think is um, interesting about this novel, but it's also one of the sort of tensions of later climate fiction is it often melds this progressive thinking about climate change with a really conservative vision about people and their depravity, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost Malthusian, right? And it's, yeah, in its arguments, yeah, it's, like it. it's basically arguing that when resources go down, that people will not band together to try and help one another out, but that they will just kill each other. And that, um, 
in this and that bodies will just be stacked up by the sides of roads. Now, you can agree with that, but you know, what you're basically projecting out is like a extremely conservative vision and I felt, you know, you see it even within her uh within what the narrator Lauren's philosophical writings are, right? They're almost Nietzschean in a way. Like it's like an oh, yeah. argument that that humans should shape God, right? And that yeah. uh and that the future is the future that Elon Musk wants, which is that people go inhabit and colonize other planets because Earth totally, is dead. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I found that tension to be super interesting because and I actually found that to be the most sort of as least intellectually satisfying part of the book, which was to mm-hmm. try and, you know, take this novel and to try and think about the ways in which it will be discussed, right? Which is this sort of black woman is writing this prescient novel. And this is the first she was a genius and she invented this genre. I think all of that is true. This is a great book. But yeah, um, yeah. the idea that you would find progressive values in this book outside of just like climate change is real, I think is is like crazy. Right? I mean, in the point about the sort of reception of it in 2020 and this, you know, um, as uh, the way this gets appropriated is a kind of progressive novel, um, even as I think Butler was someone very much on the political left, um, I, I found it really odd. And I think it goes to show that like the her race just overshadows everything, right? It's a black novel, therefore it's a progressive novel or it's a novel that espouses progressive values, even though it has this deeply conservative kind of vision that it outlines. Um, and I think it's just, yeah, I think it's a case of, you know, after 2020, people, you know, are like, well, Octavia Butler's black. Therefore, this is like a progressive sort of novel on the side of uh, on the side of, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, which is, you know, it's it's certainly not or at least it's not in a straightforward way. When a book is this unsparing, I find it to be quite an accomplishment because it's hard to write a book where you just basically don't care at all about the reader. Um, and That's I don't think that, that it, yeah. and like I this is up there for me in terms of that, right, where I'm just like uh you are just gonna go for it you're not gonna do the humor version of it like have you seen the movie the host the korean movie it's like a monster movie it's Bong a, Joon-ho. It, yeah yeah i love it yeah, yeah 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 so that that is an interesting movie to me because it is in some ways it's very similar right it's about environmental contamination and american military in korea and this monster comes out and they have to go on a journey this family and this monster keeps eat, this hilarious looking monster keeps eating everything, everybody. <laughs> but they have these. That's like the that's like the nice way to the audience to do yeah, this yeah, type yeah. of thing. And this is the mean way to the audience where you just want them to suffer the whole time. <laughs> there's no moments of levity in this book, right? Like there's just this girl scribbling this crazy shit in her, in her notebook. And for me, I was just like. Yes, I'm so interested in this as a writer because yeah, like, yeah. I you this is you like you don't care and this is your vision and your vision I think is kind of right in a lot of ways but it is deeply troubling to me that you felt this way but yeah that, I don't know we don't have to fixate on like an imagined progressive read on it but I would find that that imagined Whoa. progressive read is absurd. I think it's true of a lot of her fiction, which is usually um, like read through this, um, at least in the sort of public criticism of it, read through this progressive lens. I mean, one of my favorite, probably my favorite novel of hers is Dawn from the late 80s, which um, imagines a scenario after a nuclear apocalypse um, where aliens 
rescue the remaining survivors and house them on a spaceship, almost like a zoo, because they want to preserve our species. Um, in the opening scene, this isn't a spoiler, it's like the first moment of the novel, opens with this um, woman who's being held captive, and she can't quite make out who the captors are that come in to give her food and leave. And eventually she gets a look at them, and she realizes they're aliens. And she describes them in this like really grotesque sort of... Um, she's horrified at their appearance and much of the novel becomes about sort of people's inherent disgust at difference um, and sort of what is basically racial difference between the, you know, the humans and the sort of aliens. Um, and over the course of the novel, the character overcomes that disgust, but Butler's really clear that sort of fear and terror of difference, including physical difference is sort of baked into what it is to be a human. And then it takes all this work to get over it. That's really not a progressive vision. Um, and, and the message you come away with in the novel is like, you have to do that work. Um, but it sort of assumes that racism is sort of baked into human nature and xenophobia is baked into human nature, you know? So I think a lot of her novels are like this. I think they're broadly left, but I think they are eschew a lot of the progressive niceties, um, despite the fact that they have a large progressive readership, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that one of the things that happens too, I think is that people tend to search for allegory, um, when it's mm -hmm. a black writer, uh, yeah, yeah. and That's a great point. that yeah. I would say that, and I don't think it really happens to Asian writers. So I don't, you know, I won't say that I understand this from a personal perspective, but for black writers, everything, people sort of seek out this idea that this must be something about the racial condition of America right now. And that if I was a, black writer that I would find this to be deeply annoying, you know? Um, but, uh, I don't know, like the, what, what is this sort of allegorical discussion? I imagine that some of your students sort of by instinct seek that out, right? It's part and parcel of sort of broader trends within science fiction studies and criticism over the last several decades. There's been a push to understand science fiction as allegorical. Um, and that's for a lot of reasons. Um, Sometimes it's because it makes sense, right? The canonical example I always give of this is H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which, you know, is about an alien invasion. And uh, people often argue that it was, uh, you know, Wells was critiquing colonialism and was sort of saying, like, look, this is what it's like to be colonized. Isn't this, like, morally terrible? Um, and so the allegorical reading definitely works, but I think it's had a stranglehold on science fiction, um, which is partly due to this very prominent literary critic, Frederick Jameson, who argued that science fiction is not really about the future, it's about the present. And it's about sort of um, providing a critique of the present through the sort of um, alibi or, or detour through the future, right? And so the way this often gets mapped onto Parable of the Sower is people say, this is a novel about the, neo the neoliberal Reagan market fundamentalist 80s, right? Where we see the collapse of civil institutions, where we see the hollowing out of the social safety net, um, and this sort of near libertarian vision of, of what government should do or, or more precisely not do, right? And I think there's obviously ways in which Butler is influenced by her present moment. Um, but I also tend to think those kind of readings can also prevent us from seeing that, you know, very often science fiction novelists are actually trying to think seriously about the future. They're not just, you know, reflecting the present. And one of the reasons this reading, this allegorical impulse and sort of how we think about science fiction is so prominent is it's a way to make the novel seem more serious, right? Because if we can say this isn't actually about predicting the future, this is about market right. fundamentalism and Reagan and race, right? This is a race novel, then it's worthy of academic literary criticism, right? And so much of science fiction and how we talk about it 
is a bid for prestige. The genre has been maligned in academia for decades. Um, and one of the ways it's found a footing and gotten some prestige is by saying like, this isn't about aliens, it's about politics. This isn't about nuclear war, <laughs> it's about Reagan, you know? Um, yeah. And there's ways in which that's true, but then there are ways in which when you have a novel like Parable, I think it um, that allegorical reading becomes really limiting, particularly when it's like, oh, this is a race allegory or it's a, you know, Reagan. Right, allegory. right. My my question with all of that was always, look, I did I went to graduate school to study creative writing and and I, you know, have read a lot and read a lot of literary criticism. And one of the things about that type of reading that I've always been curious about is like, what's the end goal? Um, is it just to say, aha, this is about this other thing, and we all agree about this other thing, and so <laughs> you know, we're done here. And I'm just like, well, what about the book itself? Right? Like, uh, fine. It's about Reagan was bad. You know, like he market fundamental was bad. The hauling out of the security state of uh, the security blanket or whatever social security net was bad. Um, and now we're done talking about the book. Actually, it's about all those things that we already agree about. And so it's about yeah. politics. And I'm like, that's actually not scholarship. Like you've basically just done a little puzzle in your head. <laughs> and that you've presented this puzzle, but the puzzle, like there's no, the puzzle is nothing except for the cleverness that you figured out the puzzle. Like there's nothing yep. that makes this thing, like, why would I want to read a book where a uh, work of fiction, right? That is very, in this book, it, written in a very interesting way, right? Um, that like we said before, in its violence is interesting in itself, Right. And then in the end, just decide, oh, yeah, actually, it's about the thing I read about in the newspaper. Like, well, what is the point of that? You know, or like, it's the thing that my friend and I talk about that we agree about. And therefore, the book is good, right? Like, it's such a bizarre way to think about things. Um, and yet, it does seem to be that some literary criticism does do that. I, I, I guess, yeah, it makes sense to me that it would be like, oh, it makes it, it takes it from, it allows it to be criticized at that point, right? It allows it to be the fodder for, for criticism, whereas maybe before one would feel, like it was not up to snuff or whatever, right? Like that. But I, I don't know. I find all of that to be ridiculous. Like you should just, you know, write criticism of the text in front of you. You shouldn't shoehorn in all this politics that everybody agrees about to make it more palatable to people. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that, and it, it just is a way of, um, not always, but very often, and I think that's the case with Butler, it's a way of papering over what are really, I think, profound philosophical tensions in the text between sort of certain left-wing commitments and then this, you know, really conservative vision in other ways. And I think when we just reduce things to allegory um, or metaphor, we lose a lot of the sort of um, internal contradictions in these texts that aren't so neatly resolved when you insist on mapping them onto some sort of critique of, as you rightly point out, something we all agree about anyway. You know, I'm a big fan of the sci-fi novelist, Jeanette Winterson. She has this great book from, I think, 2007, The Stoned Gods. Um, and she's a, a queer writer and she's always pushing back against this idea that because she has gay characters that like it's gay literature, you know, because she's like, when there are straight characters, there's no straight fiction section, you know, and it's, it's right, this, right. yeah, yeah, I don't know. It is, it is, uh, it's interesting. I don't know how we break ourselves with that problem of first reading like you know um in american fiction you know which you wrote about right the film mm -hmm. that uh that Lord jefferson yeah. direct wrote and directed right there's a scene where he is mad because his book is in african-american studies yeah yeah <laughs> i had a similar experience actually with oh really being a, yeah in a bookstore being an asian-american whatever section and i was like i wasn't mad right 
Yeah, yeah. But I was like annoyed. I was just yeah, of course. It, right? Like I was just annoyed. I was like, just I don't care what section you put it on. It's actually as a book, it's a little bit hard to figure out what section to put that book in. Yeah, sure. But um, but do you just put all Asian authors in the Asian American section? Is that how you guys do it? Right? Like yeah, because yeah. that sucks, right? Like yeah, it totally means sucks. that anyone who's not Asian is not going to re- want to read that book or will think it's not for them. Yeah. Um, and like you feel like you're doing that as like some sort of identity thing, like it's progressive to do it, but it's actually not right. Like you're you're totally. sort of um, but I don't think that getting rid of that type of classification is actually going to fix this problem. Right. It's just sort of no. hardwired into our brains that we read things that way, which just is is true. And it sucks. Um, so there was an article that actually came out after we started reading this book in The Atlantic, which was very, you know, I don't know. The timing was great. It was by. Yeah. Tia Miles, and um, uh, she points out that she had a hard time reading this book, too, because it was so dark at first, but she sort of returned to it. And this is the one thing I want to talk about is um, uh, this idea of how Tia Miles describes how Octavia Butler talked about herself, right? And so mm-hmm. I'm going to read a little from the piece here, and it's, uh, this is her talking about Octavia Butler. She was a transtemporal thinker looking backwards and forward at the same time and recognizing that key figures of the future lay just out of view in the past. Through what she called this historofuturist approach, Butler predicted that America could slide into autocracy, a decline quickened and deepened by environmental degradation and technological advancement. Um, Historofuturist is my invention. This is Butler talking. An historian who extrapolates from the human past and present as well. Uh, as the technological past and present, um, like what, what what's this mean? Like what 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 is what is what is Tia Miles talking about here? Yeah, I mean, I think the reading she's advancing of Butler, which is a really interesting one, is um, you know Butler is somebody who thinks sci-fi is about um, taking what is happening in the present and then imagining what happens if these trends continue, right? Um, and part of this comes from a uh, science fiction critic named Darko Suvin, who wrote um, this essay in the seventies, I believe, called "On the Poetics of the Science Fiction Genre." And what he said in that essay is that like what is um, what characterizes science fiction is that it's extrapolative, right? Like, or that's one of the things that characterizes it. It takes seeds from the present, from the real world, technological and scientific developments in our present, and then kind of imagines what might happen, right, um, in the future, which isn't for Suvin saying it's in the business of prediction as much as it's saying, outlining different things that could potentially happen on the basis of, of what's happening in the present. And that seems to be how Tia Miles is reading Butler. And I think it's a pr- really productive way to read her. I mean, she was, and Tia Miles points this out, but she was, um, Butler uh, was a crazy archivist. She would keep newspaper clippings. She um, was particularly interested in early climate change summits in the 1990s and late 80s. Um, So she was somebody who was really thinking seriously about what's going on in the present, but trying to imagine, you know, if the climate change people are right in the early 90s, what does that mean for the 2020s, you know? Um, And so I, I, uh, I really think this, uh, yeah, I think this reading is a productive one. And this, uh, you know, saying Butler is somebody who's moving back between and forth between the history and the future, I think is right. I mean, even if you look at parable, um, there are those recurrent moments of, of slavery, right? Um, and right. so, you know, there are these ways in which it's it's definitely borrowing from the past. It's taking stuff that was happening in her present, uh, whether that was Reaganism or, um, you know, early climate change discourse, but she wasn't just mirroring it or reflecting it as an allegory. She's trying to think about like, what does this mean for the next several decades, you know? 
I found it really interesting. One thing I found interesting, I can talk about this now because this show's not going anywhere, but at a, for a, a while, period of time, this was before the pandemic. Pandemic kind of ruined this idea. But I had this idea for this TV show that would be set in the near future in Los Angeles. Everyone was living in walled compounds, but it was basically like racially stratified. It was like the Armenians and the Koreans. And obviously my one focused on the Koreatown thing. And mm-hmm. there had been this horrific accident, uh, event that had made basically like maimed or made everybody sick on earth and that so it's post-apocalyptic in this time and this korean mobster woman right who ran a karaoke bar which you know korean karaoke bars have all the little individual rooms yeah was was turning her uh business into like a secret euthanasia clinic and was like making money as anyway Clearly, this got nowhere because this is like so fucked up. It was like everyone's like, "Whoa, yeah, this awesome. is dark." Yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like this is dark, and I was like, "Yeah,", yeah. I was like no, 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 not in a good way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, "What the fuck is this?" And then the pandemic actually happened. You know, and I was like, "Whoa!" But I was kind of interested in it because when I was reading this, I was like, "Where did I get this idea for walled off compound post apocalyptic like warring factions thing?" Right? Did I get it from like? Tolkien, right? Like, is, was I thinking about like, like a uh, Lord of the Rings? Like, where did I get this from? But like, I, I don't know. Like, in the notes that we wrote back and forth about this, like, you seem to think that like a lot of the origin of this type of idea, at least in terms of climate fiction, apocalypse type of stuff, might have come from this book. Yeah, I think at least a lot of it does. I mean, I think you know, Butler is certainly not the first you know depiction of this kind of you know walled gated community sort of thing we've seen. I mean, even like movies like Mad Max, you know, are also right. sort of traffic in this in this basic trope. But I think at least in climate fiction, that's a huge part of it. And you know, um, I make this joke a lot, but I, I really do think a lot of climate fiction after Butler is the progressive version of right-wing survivalism, right? It's the same imagination of a future of civil war, bunker building, walled compounds, stockpiling guns. And the only difference is, you know, who who are the heroes, right? And and rather than sort of being white survivalists on the right, it's, you know, this multiracial, you know, coalition that we get in a a certain kind of progressive climate novel. Um, And I think Butler does kick that off. I think she's doing something way more sophisticated than that, not just in this novel, but in general. Uh, But I do think, um, she sedimented a certain kind of vision of the future that has become really hegemonic um, in sort of the broader culture, but definitely in um, sci-fi and particularly sort of environmentally attuned sci-fi. I think you're, I so do you think there's a bit of positive like influence in, in this type of thing that, the, that this sort of walled off community hegemonic, uh, walled off community survivalist type of thing? Like, I mean, it is true that it is quite, it is quite hegemonic in, the way in which the in which the apocalyptic future is portrayed. This isn't Butler's fault. Like I said, my frustration, I think, is with her like inheritors. But um, I do I don't think it's been good for how we think about, um, you know, the future of climate change. I think how we think about the future, particularly with regard to specific problems or technological issues, is really heavily filtered through the prism of science fiction in ways that aren't always helpful or good, you know. Um, And, you know, there are exceptions to this. Kim Stanley Robinson, who's Fiction is really interesting. He's a sci-fi novelist who, who right. writes a lot of climate novels. They're much, they're not quite utopian, um, but they're definitely uh, sort of solution-facing and are interested in thinking about like what does adaptation adaptation look like that isn't totally dystopian, you know, um, and where 
some version of the good life seems to be possible. Um, but yeah, I, I really do think this has a negative influence on our imagination. I mean, it's not just, you know, um, novels either i mean if you look at things like the last of us a lot of our um that the HBO last of us is very similar to this right yeah 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 or, and it was... or that the the sort of ubiquity of the zombie vision right now which is really yeah. the only vision right um totally uh, yeah, yeah the... i don't know i i do think there is like um I don't want to overstate the role that film and fiction has on determining how we think about the future, but I think, I think it definitely has some role. Um, and I really think it makes particularly young people I encounter feel that there's not much hope for solutions. And, you know, as somebody um, who has studied fears and anxieties about human extinction, you know, for the past two centuries, one thing that is really striking to me is we've had other moments like this. I mean, there were population scares in the seventies and early eighties where, you know, right. the books yeah, population yeah, yeah. Bomb, overpopulation. Yep. Yeah. Predicted that, you know, human civilization would collapse within the decade. And of course that didn't happen, you know, um, and climate change is really bad and I don't want to minimize the badness of it. It's, it's scientifically grounded in a way that those population fears were not. Um, but I, I do think, you know, the past history of similar moments teaches us that often um, they don't resolve in the ways in which we imagine them in our fiction and film and so on. You know, um, uh, you know, the big uh, population movie in the seventies was Soylent Green or whatever, you know? Um, so anyway, I do think there's something limiting about this um, sort of climate fiction prism and sort of this narrow dystopia and particularly that it's like dystopia of one form. It's not like there's a variety of dystopias imagined. It's right. all this sort of, walled compound, you know, fraying community kind of, uh, you know, tribalism. I don't right. Know, and, and, yeah. and sort of barbaric violence, right. Where people are reduced yep. down to, to animals like uh, a yeah. station. Did you see station 11 or have you read station? Embarrassingly? 11? No, I know I need to, oh. but no. Station 11, I thought in terms of the way in which it was made was a fantastically good television show that I found <laughs> to be deeply emotionally moving, but it's the same thing. It's walled compounds travel between the walled mm -hmm. compounds um and uh you know the world is destroyed it's been overrun and there's like a new form of uh ecology people eat different things all that stuff is in parable of the sower right um yeah. like the big thing is that the lauren's family eats acorns because uh you know wheat and all these other things are unavailable or they're too expensive and so they've found this new way to subsist and a lot of Lauren's understanding of what the new world should be is based on a new way of thinking about consumption. Um, yeah, and absolutely. That, like, so Station Eleven is similar to that. Yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, we do. We are in a. I don't like to use this term, except ironically. So I'll use it ironically here. But we have a monoculture of apocalypse. Uh, yeah, that's a good of, a, of, of apocalypse visions right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what's the other apocalypse vision? We should come up with some other ones, you know, because like, uh, it's just it's just basically zombie films, right? Like, that's the yeah. that is the main um, understanding of this. And this, in some ways, is a zombie. It, the this book yeah. is, is a zombie. Book. I mean, even uh, the characters who are uh, they're characters who are on these recreational drugs that sort of make them obsessed with fire and drive them raving mad, you know. And there is. There is even like this, I mean, they're not zombies per se, but there is definitely this sort of um, element uh, element to to the Butler novel, yeah. Yeah, it's cool though. I think you're right. I think that if I was a person, let's say of um, intellectual dark web 
or even right wing leaning. And I read this book. First of all, I think I would really enjoy it unless I was, you know, racist or something. But I would enjoy the book because I would say that the vision that Octavia Butler is giving is what we're living in right now. Right. Yeah. There are all these people dying of drugs. Uh, There's people moving all over the place, as evidenced by the gigantic border crisis that we have right now. Um, There's violence in all American cities and a complete wanton disregard for human life. uh, And that 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 everything has basically been stripped out that made people coherent or any type of society at all. And that we're living in chaos. Like that's basically yeah. the best. I think that's the most generous read of that. And you're right. It is a profoundly uh, uh, conservative read. All right. Oh, I don't know. I really enjoyed that. Uh, let's keep doing it. Like next week, yeah, no, let's think of great. another really book fun. to do. And um, I'm sorry to lean so much on your you know, expertise here. I have no real expertise except, you know, I don't know. Uh, if you want to talk about experimental fiction or something like that, maybe. I would have yeah, yeah. No, I'd be super down for that. <laughs> but um. But yeah, let's get to the Okay, so the second thing we want to talk about here is that the NFL playoffs are going on right now. And this was uh, something that I've always been really interested in and um, something that I think that we should talk about because the NFL is thought about in terms of race in two ways, right? It is thought about race in terms of the black quarterback, which has been a historical... I mean, the history of it is not great for football or the NFL. And yet we seem to be in this interesting moment where there are a lot of black quarterbacks like uh when i was growing up there were not there's doug williams won the Mm -hmm. super bowl but he was not thought to and i think rightfully not thought to be he's more like a game manager type of great team that ended up winning the super bowl and certainly did not have a long distinguished career in the same way that some of the other players might have now that might have been because of racism which is very 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 real in terms of uh who gets selected as quarterbacks and then there was Randall Cunningham and then there was uh, and then who everybody, you know, I don't, not everybody, but, you know, like young, young people who wanted like cool players. They all liked Randall Cunningham because he ran yeah. and was fast. And then and then the real sort of renaissance where a lot of there's a lot of black quarterback starts in the late 90s, early 2000s, where you have Michael Vick, Steve McNair, Donovan McNabb, Dante Culpepper, Cordell Stewart, David Garrard, Byron Leftwich, all these people coming into the league at once um yeah where where do you think we are in terms of this like well what, what was interesting about the sort of question of black quarterbacks in this exact moment that you wanted to talk about yeah i mean i think it's just interesting insofar as we do seem to be in this kind of in-between phase where the sort of um you know the sort of stereotypes of of the black quarterback and the quarterback position more generally, right, is as the sort of field general and as a very cerebral position where you're uh, making decisions that are are sort of uh, intellectually, you know, complicated and, and whatever. And so um, I think it, you know, for all of the normal racist reasons, right, I think historically and culturally, those aren't um, traits we've associated with, you know, African-American football players. And so um, there's always been the stigma of the black quarterback. And as you point out, I think there are um, ways in which we've moved beyond it. Um, and yet at the same time, we're still trapped in it in certain ways, right? I mean, yeah. I think Lamar Lamar Jackson is the one I always think of who is really still has this sort of black quarterback narrative grafted onto him, right? That, oh, he doesn't really win in the playoffs, even though he's obviously incredible. Oh, he's not really a passer, even though he's, you know, very much more than proficient, even though he's, he's very mobile. Um, but what I guess interests me about it is it's 
seems to be applied so unevenly in this moment. Like there's a lot of <laughs> yeah, other, yeah, weird. like there's, there's these other black quarterbacks. I mean, there's Dak Prescott, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Jalen Hurts. Um, and I think many of them, if not all of them are mobile. Um, and yet they don't have the same stereotypes applied to them. I mean, we often talk about Dak Prescott as a really smart quarterback, right? Who's, who's making, right. you know, really he sophisticated went to Northwest, decisions. Northwestern graduate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so there's like this subset that seems to escape this. And I guess one of my thoughts, and I, I, I don't, I don't know if it's true or not, but if it's a, a sort of colorism thing where Lamar, like the, the quarterbacks I mentioned, you know, Dak and Mahomes and, uh, you know, Hertz and so on are either uh, mixed race or very light skinned, you know, whereas Lamar is not. And so I don't know if it's um, something to do with colorism, but yeah, it's really interesting because um, there's ways in which, you know, I want to say we're past some of it. Um, you know, Mahomes is uh, everyone's, you know, everyone adores Mahomes and people talk about him as a really smart and cerebral player, you know? And um, so there's ways that we seem to be moving past it. And yet there are these, you know, examples and Lamar is the most flagrant where we still seem really stuck in it, you know? Yeah. It's so I guess very... the asymmetry of it interests me. It's such a weird moment, right? It used to be right that every, the, stereotype and this was passed on by generations of racist sports writers yeah. who would say that basically well black quarterbacks are athletes right mm -hmm. they're just athletic and they're fast and they have gifts right all this euphemisms yeah. that infected sports writing for and in many ways still does right but that yeah, yeah. uh and that the white quarterback was the pocket passer and was mm -hmm. cerebral and could go through different reads and was yeah, you yeah. know through his like force of will and intellect was going to destroy was going to lead the team to victory whereas the black quarterback you just have to like learn to cage his gifts into into some sort of like structure because he's too he's too wild. whatever shiftless and wild to 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 play the position adequately unless he has like a white coach who looks after him like that this was like this is it this is not ancient history this is like well within my lifetime yeah, <laughs> right? oh yeah it's like randall cunningham mike vick right and then at some point um and this does not just talking it's not just the media that does this has had all its sorts of impact it's why black players are generally told to play different like running back or wide receiver none of them are told to play quarterback because these, yeah. this type of racism exists it's like the most obvious racist shit in the world yeah and it's uh sports writing everything like that has gotten better um right and i think part of the reason is just because there are so many black quarterbacks now that you can't just be racist to all of them and say the yeah, same yeah. thing without the public kind of just being like you seem to be saying this quite a bit <laughs> you seem yeah. to say the same thing over and over yeah, yeah. Also, some of them were not fast, you know. Like Byron Leftwich was not fast. David Garrard yeah, yeah. was like a was a classic game manager, right? Jason yep. Campbell, in the same way, was like the classic game manager. I apologize to the readers who have no or to the listeners who have no idea who any of these people are. But um, but uh, and then there were fast quarterbacks, right? But then there are also fast white quarterbacks that started totally. to emerge, right? like yeah. Jake Locker, for we're example. Yeah, lightning fast. And then they have a, and and then you have like, you know, Josh Allen, right? Who is the most gifts quarterback that has ever existed and that he's so yeah. big, he's so fast, he has such a rocket arm. And when he came in the NFL, was so stupid <laughs> and had no idea how to play football. But honestly, but we I, apply the stereotypes of the black quarterback to Josh Allen. Like, that's how we talk about Josh yeah, Allen. Josh like, Allen big and dumb and dumbling, you know? 
Yeah, well, Josh Allen might be back in the NFL right now. Yeah, yeah Josh, the two black quarterbacks in the NFL are Josh Allen and, and Lamar. <laughs> I think it's kind of true, you know. Um, so right, I I don't know. I don't. I never know really what to make of it. Um, I told you this uh, independently, but you know, by buddy Bimani Jones did this uh, podcast with Dominique Foxworth, and he um, was talking about how Jameis Winston. If people wanted to search for evidence that racism didn't exist, right? If somebody wanted to find the ultimate example of, oh, all you people are just complaining, there's this counterexample, right, that proves that all of your claims are wrong. That Jameis Winston was the greatest claim, uh, counterexample for white people who wanted to talk about how racism doesn't exist because Jameis Winston at the time would throw like 40 interceptions a year and then the next year would still be the starting quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, if you want to show that, you could take this very bad quarterback, right? Who, in uh, if if everything we said about black quarterbacks was true, would have lost his job years ago, and yet he still keeps having wings to life. Yeah, the same job. Yeah. So we're in this we're in this odd place with it. Um, I don't really know what to make of it, and I don't. I I can identify when people apply this stuff to Lamar Jackson specifically. And yeah. it makes me really mad, you know, because I'm yeah. just like, you're being fucking racist and you sound like fucking Phil Mushneck or you feel sound like yeah. Jimmy the Like, you just sound like these old school racist sports people who uh, are just blindly applying the dumbest shit in the world. And this stuff, you know, it shouldn't work anymore. And yet with Lamar, it kind of still yeah. is the narrative around him. I don't know why that's true or is allowed to be true. Well, in a world where people have to have different takes about some of this other stuff. But I do wonder if it is this colorism issue, which is something that I don't, you know, you brought up. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's not true. Mm -hmm. I just think that we, as a, I think that black people amongst black people can talk about that. Right. But mm -hmm. I just think that within the larger sports like, if you brought that up, can you imagine how crazy people would be in their response? <laughs> they would get so mad at you. They'd be like, oh, my God, now we can't even, like, support a black quarterback anymore. You know, like, we can't say one of them's good without you getting mad. All you woke idiots are, like, you won't run out of stuff to complain about. And then you're like, okay, look, you know, this is a, is a difficult conversation, but I don't know. You know, it's a, it, I, yeah. I do wonder about that because, you know. Dak doesn't really get that at all. And Dak, you know, as proven yesterday, yeah. is just a huge choker, right? right? Which is yeah, a thing yeah, that huge. gets thrown onto black quarterbacks. Yeah. 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 I don't know, man. I mean, the coaching thing is the same way. I often joke that uh, football turns me into like Hebrew Max Kendi. It's like the thing I am locust about. Because you can just like, you can see so much racism in sports where it's really clear. I mean, you see it with coaching too, but that's another place where it's unevenly applied. Like Mike Tomlin, everyone uniformly talks about, rightly so, is like a, you know, an exemplar of like a coach's coach, you know? And then there are other black coaches where you do see all of these same stereotypes that end up getting applied, you know? So um, it's a weird thing where it seems like the, the stereotype isn't 
isn't dead. Um, and the way it's applied is like really weird and uneven and inexplicable. And some, you know, some people get it applied to them and some people get seem to get a free pass. It's yeah, I don't know. It's strange. All I know is the uh, NFL has not ended racism like the uh, stickers on the helmet say, but you know, maybe yeah, yeah. We'll <laughs> yeah. Or the, it's on the back of their little helmet thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was funny. Or not funny, but you know, when Patrick Mahomes is looking his helmet exploded, and then yeah. you see the little, like, I don't and, even know what yeah, the message yeah. is in the back. Um, I was watching a game like two weeks ago with my nephew and he saw the end racism thing. And I think it was, it wasn't on a helmet. It was like in the end zone or whatever. And he's like, does the NFL want to end racism? And I was like, I think so. And he's like, have they done it yet? And I was like, oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. The way in which I think that type of discourse runs through the coaching conversation is, and I do think it applies to Tomlin as well, which is that, Mm -hmm. and this has been true for a very long time, which is that black coaches are always called players coaches. This is very true in the NBA that, uh, oh, you know, they get the players, they can get down with the players. They know they're great motivators, right? But they're never seen as Bill Belichick where they're like, oh, this is like a genius type, right? And Mm -hmm. um, that type of thing now gets smuggled in this is not the fault of analytics but it is definitely something that happens which is that it gets smuggled in through analytics right it's very yep. difficult to find somebody who is black who is uh touted as being like an analytics wizard or something like that or like somebody who has re re-envisioned the game uh in this way isn't that look at their play calling it's so genius right like that mm-hmm. that's not something that is generally attributed to black coaches uh it's generally attributed to white coaches. And one of the things that always makes me the angriest, which is when a black coach who is doing very well is stripped of their of credit for it because the media goes out and seeks out the white guy that they want to call the genius behind the black coach, right? Like that happens yeah, all the yeah, time. Yeah. Same thing happened with Doc Rivers in Boston, right? When Doc oh, Rivers is coaching the Celtics, everyone's like, actually, Doc Rivers is just the player's coach. Tom Thibodeau is the real genius behind all of this. He's the one that comes up with all the defensive stuff. And I'm like, Maybe, but also like you have, you know, the greatest defensive player of all time, arguably now on your team and Kevin Garnett. And uh, (laughs) like also like the job of the head coach is basically CEO to delegate things correctly. Right. Like like, even if Thibodeau is coming up with that, that doesn't mean that he gets all the credit for it. Like, are you crazy? Do you think that college head? Do you think Dick Saban is calling plays, you know, like, or like, has, like, <laughs> you know, like what, what is, what is the thinking there? You just go try and find like the nerdy white guy until, you know, yeah. you just keep searching until you find the nerdy white guy. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the coaching thing I think is might change except for that people seem to be really mad about the Rooney rule at all times. Right. The yeah. Rooney rule for the listeners is that um, NFL, when you hire a head coach, you have to um, hire, you have to interview at least one black candidate. Maybe it's two black candidates, but you have to. Too, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, but people, I don't know. I feel like it's a little bit different now because Eric Bieniemy, I think, was not anymore. But, you know, until yeah. this year where he, the commanders were awful, was sort of seen as that zany, brainy yeah. play yeah. guy. And then now with the Houston Texans, you know, Eric, uh, D'Amico Ryan's D'Amico is seen Ryan. as like, right, he's going to be coach of the year and he, everybody seems to have fallen in line. But at the same time, with the same thing with quarterbacks, it's like, okay, things can get better, but it doesn't mean that the majority or a lot of the thinking about the league is not driven by these 
racializations yeah. of it. And there's also like a, um, it, it seems to dovetail in certain ways with like a poverty thing too. Like, um, you know, I don't, I, I mean, I think of um, like, or a, like a lack of polish or something, or like a certain kind of like way of speaking, you know, like McDaniels gets out there, Kyle Shanahan, and they're very much like, they telegraph, like, I'm a data, I'm an analytics guy, I'm not like a right. player's coach. I mean, I'm thinking about someone like Dan Campbell, too, who people, you know, he's ta- he's entirely turned around the Lions franchise. And yet the way people talk about him is, is this, like, dumb brute who's just, like, a player's coach and, you know, he's, he's really good at inspiring. He's not a thinker, but he's an inspirer or whatever. Right. And I just find it, um, there seems to be, like, some class piece that gets tacked onto this, too, that I find uh, that dovetails with race, but not perfectly. In the case of someone like Campbell, it is, uh, yeah, I don't know it's uh the sort of players coach versus the analytics guy or the sort of kid genius is is definitely interesting right D'Amico Ryan's like they're talking about him like they you know they talked about Sean McVay or whatever or or uh, Daniels in in, in Miami is this you know smart uh smart kid wonder but yeah I don't know it's it's changing but slowly and it's yeah very asymmetrical right and 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 McDaniels is seen as the ultimate genius McDaniels is I think prefers to be called multi- Racial, yeah, that's right. right. He's but by yeah. by the standards that people would call people black, he is black. I mean, he has a black father mm-hmm. and a and yep. a white mother. Um, but it, now, in terms of like whatever self appearance or something like that, not you know, like he might not appear to be as black as some other half black people, but you know. Like, I don't know, like the standard is a standard, right? Like that's how we No, no. And I think that speaks to like the colorism piece too, though, that like, you know, McDaniels is somebody who does not, is not thought of as a player's coach at all, right? He's thought of as this like great He's the genius, yeah. He's the genius. He's the new Kyle Shanahan, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, the, I think what happens is that you have, uh, I've said, I've written about this before, but I don't think you talk about it on the podcast, but basically... There is since Moneyball, there has been this real effort and this idea that there is a market for people who, uh, if you can find the genius behind some big system, especially in sports, and that the person went to all the right schools and that they're mm-hmm. like the quiet person, they're Paul De Potesta, kind of like arranging stats and tell, convincing Billy Bean that uh, on base percentage is good, right? That, mm-hmm. that there is this like kind of nerd in the corner who, understands everything better than we do ourselves that there has been a push to find that nerd in the corner in everything and put them in charge of everything right the idea that this is a there is a smarter more efficient way to do everything and that the reason why these things don't actually change is because there is a great institutional arrogance and there is a type of attrition that happens within these institutions that have their way of doing things and that the nerds are like the disruptors and the nerds are the heroes, right? Um, That ends up not being all that true in most cases, right? And yet I think we had a period of about 15 years where that narrative was extremely appealing towards to people within the media. Um, It was very, it was applied, I think unfairly to somebody who, you know, I will defend much more than I think, you know, some other leftists will, but you know, it was applied to Nate Silver Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Nate Silver has destroyed political journalism. He has uh, disrupted political journalism. We don't actually need to know about all this horse race nonsense or whatever. Now, there are real true parts about that, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, pl- uh, all we need is Nate Silver doing his uh, averaging, and then we're going to figure it out. Um, but, you know, um, I think that in most cases, that uh, 
that type of narrative always ends up being false because, you know, you're seeking stuff out. Football is like a game where 22 dudes are smashing their heads against each other. It might be more important to have somebody who motivates them correctly to keep doing that. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, yeah, I I don't know. Uh, Yeah, that Brandon Staley guy in San Diego who was like the ultimate nerd coach. And he was like the worst coach ever. He got so many chances. He ruined Justin Herbert's prime. They just like lit it on fire and they never fired him. Yeah, they never fired him. It's remarkable. Yeah, because he probably convinced the owner, right? You only have to really convince one person in that sort of scenario. Showed up with his pie charts and spreadsheets. and uh, Yeah, yeah. All right, so what do you think is going to happen the rest of these playoffs? Oh, man, I don't know. Uh, I mean, we just got done singing Lamar's praises, but I I, uh, I don't trust the Ravens per se. I don't know. They've bottomed out in the playoffs a lot, which I don't think is Lamar's fault, to be clear, but I'm not not sure if they're going to come out of the AFC. Uh, I think the Texans are interesting. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think, you know, the Bucks are going to get much farther than they've already gotten. Uh, I mean, I think out of the a- NFC, I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be San Francisco. I'd like to see the Lions. I think it's a really great story. I love Dan Campbell. Um, I think, you know, uh, it will be, I think, great for the city of Detroit. But uh, I don't know. San Francisco is pretty damn polished. What do you think? Yeah, well, at the beginning of the year, like in week four or something, I was thinking about it. I just tweeted out. The NFL is just chaos, and then the Chiefs play the 49ers in the Super Bowl. Uh, I still <laughs> think that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's. Like I was feeling a little bad about it for a while because you know the Chiefs were bad, and then yeah, and now I'm just like, yeah, of course that's what's going to happen. You know, yeah. I don't know. Do you think the uh, Bills and uh, you think the Bills have a chance next week? No, no. I, <laughs> I, I just it's like Patrick Mahomes is. I think people undersell how great he is. You know, yeah, I think I that, that. I mean, it's not. People always say he's the best quarterback, whatever, like that. But I think what we're watching is the greatest quarterback of all time. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't think it's particularly close unless you bring in all the career accomplishment stuff, which, you know, he hasn't yeah. gotten, obviously, to Brady. But in terms of talent and impact on a game, ability to influence whether that team wins or loses, that he is the best of all time to me. And yep. um, I just have a hard time. It's like one of those things where, okay, We'll see when he loses, you know, but until yeah, he yeah. loses, I'm not going to ever think he's going to lose, you know, and then I mean, the Niners. That's how I felt like, about, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's how I felt about um, Brady. The first football season I ever watched was Tom Brady as uh, um, his second year when they, he won his first Super Bowl and as this underdog story. So, you know, I've always been a Brady fan. I mean, I think he's like personally crazy, obviously, but insofar as like my memories of him were intimately like, rooted to him being this like underdog figure and so i think i never like uh the like later golden boy stuff like never bothered me as much you know but that's how i felt about brady it was always like well the patriots are probably going to be in the super bowl and they're probably going to win and if i don't gamble but if i were a gambling person i i don't know why you would put money against that particular outcome you know and that's now how i feel about the chiefs it's like i you know i don't know it's just it's probably going to be san francisco and the chiefs you know? Okay. Yeah, this totally. was a fun time. Um, I, uh, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, we do this. We'll be back next week. Right on. And uh, if you'd like to contribute to the show or you'd like to help support the show, it is $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash ttsgpod. And uh, if you'd like to get in contact, it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Um, all right. Until next week. Thanks, Tyler. Yep. Cheers, man. Bye. Okay.
Und ich 